Well, join me in prayer. Lord, I know that that is one of the most loved and popular songs of all time. And it still resonates with us this morning. Amazing grace. May we never cease to be amazed that you would love us, that we matter to you, that you have uh, done so much to enable us to be reconciled with you, that you've given your son Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven, our past can be cleansed, and we can start anew with you, Lord. And by faith in Jesus, we can receive the gift of living water, of eternal life, of the Spirit of God come to abide with us. And we thank you, Lord, and we thank you, too, for your word, the scriptures which continue to speak to us today. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us to hear and heed what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Doing all right? All right. It's good to be here. I was gone for a couple weeks. A lot of you know I was on a mission trip, and thanks for your prayers. I really appreciate your prayers. That means a lot to me. And we still have two people uh, from our church that are still over there, Dan and Carly. So please continue to pray for the ongoing ministry Uh, not just that they have, but a lot of what we do in China is we partner with some local, what's sometimes called tent makers. Uh, These are Christians uh, from the United States who are there, uh, not as missionary visas. You can never get a missionary visa to go to China. So uh, they're there as teachers, uh, but they're really there with a heart to serve the Lord and make themselves available uh, as they're there. So uh, anyway, I'm going to say I appreciate your prayers and your support of the mission trip and Uh, God did some wonderful things. I'm sure you'll hear more about that in the weeks ahead. But I also want to say today that we have to be careful about missions. And the reason is that I think sometimes we put missions and missionaries in a whole different category than the rest of us normal folk. And uh, so I I think there's some myths about missions that we need to be wary of. You know, like uh, one of them is that uh, missionaries are a whole different breed of Christians. They're the super Christians. They're the real Christians. They're the devoted Christians, and then there's the rest of us, right? And I I think it's a myth. I think that people can be just as dedicated to the Lord here as uh, those who have answered the call to go serve him overseas. In fact, we ought to be just as dedicated, right? It's not like, oh, if God calls you to be a missionary, then you're going to get really serious about your devotional life and your life of discipleship. And if God doesn't call you to be a missionary, then you can just coast and be a lukewarm, half-hearted Christian. It's not that at all, right? So I think it's a myth that missionaries are a whole different breed of Christians. Missionaries are really just people who have uh, received grace and offered up their lives to God and basically said, Lord, here am I, Uh, send me. And God happens to have sent them to different cultures and and different lands and other countries and all of that. But, you know, really they're doing what we all ought to be doing if if we're followers of Jesus, right? Is to offer up our lives and receive his grace and offer up our lives and, and say, Lord, here am I, I'm available to you. Uh, So I think it's a myth that missionaries are a whole different breed of Christians. I also think there's another myth, and that's that God works over there in that foreign land, but he doesn't work here. And sometimes we hear these, you know, dramatic missionary stories, and and I I love those stories, and I've seen some amazing things firsthand. But I really do think it's a myth that God is working uh, in other places, but he's not working here. And some of what we need is just to kind of like have our spiritual antenna up to see how he's working and what he's doing and have our ears open and our minds open 
uh, and be attentive to what God is doing here and what he wants to do here. I think there's another myth, and that's that uh, Christians experience God's presence only on the mission field. Now, how many of you have ever been on a, a mission trip or had some missions experience? Just raise your hand, okay? <clears throat> now, is this true for you that you felt more intimate and closer to God uh, when you were on missions? You know, some of us would say, yeah, I mean, there have been some great experiences. Uh, so this is what I'm thinking, though. The danger is that we put missionaries in a separate category, that we think, oh, God is working there but not here, and we think that you can be close to God if you're on a mission trip in a way that you can't be close to God here. So, you know, I was on a two-week mission trip. I've been back for about a week now, and I've been thinking about this. Why is it? Why is it sometimes we see God at work there but not here? Why is it sometimes we feel the presence of God and a nearness to God and intimacy with the Lord, a depth in our walk with Christ that sometimes we don't experience here? And is it really because of being a missionary or is it because of being in a different country? Uh, so I have some thoughts about it. Let me share with you. I, I think one thing that happens, at least to me, is when I wake up in a foreign country and I think, oh, where am I? You know, get, get oriented. And then, and then immediately I recognize I'm, I'm not in my own bed, in my own bedroom, in my own house. I'm somewhere else. And that reminds me that I'm here on a mission, that this day is to be offered up to the Lord, that I'm supposed to go into this day and say, um, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And I am to go into this day with an open and receptive attitude toward however God wants to use me, wherever he wants to take me. Uh, you know, there's often new encounters with people. But, but that idea that uh, this day is offered up to God and I'm offered up to God and I go into the day with anticipation for what God might have for me this day. I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes on mission trips we, we, we sense the nearness of God more. And then I'm thinking, wait, time out. Aren't we all supposed to start every day that way, no matter where we are? You know, just this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God, here am I, maybe in a familiar place or an unfamiliar place, but here am I. Uh, my life is offered up to you this day. Whatever you want to do with me, whatever you want to teach me, wh wh however you want to use me, I'm open to you. So uh, this is my thought is if we had that same mentality... We wouldn't have to say, oh, I wish I could go on a mission trip so I could feel close to God or, or used by God. Uh, so I was thinking another thing about this is I think sometimes on mission trips we uh, maybe experience God more, more profoundly partly because we're taking risks for God. We're taking risks of faith. We're expressing our faith by you know, doing something uncomfortable, maybe relationally or culturally or something. And, and again, I'm thinking, okay, now... Does that mean that if God hasn't called you to be a missionary and go to some foreign land that you don't have to take risks for God? I think sometimes we're just lulled into a certain kind of complacency. Maybe our spiritual life is starting to, to get stalled or stagnated because we're not taking risks for God, which we should take here. In fact, this is what I realized. For me, it's easier for me to share about Jesus in Vietnam, where I was a couple of weeks ago, or in China, where I was after that, um, even though I don't know the language and I often have to talk with people through a translator and all that, and yet it's still easier for me to talk about Jesus and, and the Bible uh, with a stranger there than a stranger here. I think, okay, why is that? And you don't, you don't have to psychoanalyze me. I don't know why, why that is. But I will tell you this. For me, at least, sometimes it's actually more awkward and more uncomfortable to talk about my faith here than it is in some foreign land. But that means it's going to take a risk, right? 
a relational risk or the risk of rejection or the risk of being thought uh, politically incorrect or something. Uh, so we have risks here. And I think one of the reasons why missions is so exciting is because people are actively daily taking risks of faith. And this is what I'm realizing is we all ought to be doing that every day. In fact, maybe it's a greater risk to try to share the love of God with your coworker in your office or you know, to reach out and, and uh, befriend your neighbor. Uh, so I do believe this, that I think we would experience more of the reality of God's work in our lives if our, every day our life was just offered up to him and we went in with that anticipation, Lord, Lord what do you have for me this day? I, I'm receptive, I'm available, I'm listening, I'm going to be obedient the best I can. And, and if we were willing to take more risks for the Lord, uh, here's another thing. I, I think missions, sometimes we experience so much of, of the reality of God, the presence of God, partly because when you're on a mission team, you've got a whole church of people back home praying for you, right? Oh, Lord, bless them, show yourself to them, fill them with your Holy Spirit, use them, right? And you know, again, I'm thinking, you know what? You know what's sad? It's, are, are we praying for each other the same way here? Because, you know, you've got a ministry, you've got a mission, and you need prayer, right? Oh, Lord, help, help my friend to, to just be a godly person in that workplace that's filled with conflict. You know? uh, oh, Lord, help, help, help my family member to be a good witness. You know? uh, so, and to stay pure and true. So this is what I'm thinking. A lot of the, the great stuff that happens in terms of spiritual dynamics of missions, it could be happening here. It ought to be happening here, right? Take a risk for Jesus. Uh, pray for each other and offer up your life to God every day. So we're, we're coming near the end of this series called uh, God is Closer Than You Think. And uh, how many of you have been involved in that during the week, like through the study guide, the DVDs, or reading the books? How many of you have been kind of involved with that? Okay, I, I want to just encourage you, uh, and I'm going to give one more message in this series next week, which is Palm Sunday. And, and that's, I want to try to address the issue about when God seems absent. It's chapter 9 in the book, if you want to read it. But... Um, even though the series is going to end, and a lot of you, you finished the study guide, it only had six sessions, I want to just encourage you to, to read the book if you haven't read the book. Uh, but this whole idea of God is closer than you think, I think can be life-changing, right? It could be transformational. Uh, God is closer than you think. It's possible, and this is one of the main ideas of the whole series, it's possible for each of us to learn to recognize and experience God's presence right now, every moment, wherever we are, right? <clears throat> when Jesus uh, launched his public ministry, uh, there's a great verse in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where he basically said, here's why I'm here. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come, it's a time of fulfillment. It's a time of the arrival of a chosen moment, a kairos moment. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In the New Living Translation, it says, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Uh, one other translation, the CEB, it's Common English Bible. Uh, really good translation. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Now's the time. That's what Jesus, he came and says, you know, people have been praying for this time, looking for it, 
you know, anticipating it. And he says, now the time has arrived. The kingdom of God has drawn near because the king has landed on this foreign planet. His name is Jesus, right? And he has come to bring the rule and reign of God near to us and to invite people to participate in the kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom of God has not come in all its fullness, all its glory. That'll happen when Jesus returns and, and he will return. But in advance of that day, uh, we can enter into the kingdom. In fact, the Philippians says we are citizens now of heaven. Still living on this earth, but citizens of heaven. In 2 Corinthians, it says we are ambassadors for Christ. We're still living in this world, but we're ambassadors representing, in a sense, another world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens there, but we're living it out here. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're to live for Christ, represent Christ here in this world, which is a fallen, fallen planet. A sinful, broken, often rebellious world. John Ortberg, in the book God is Closer Than You Think, he says this, The good news Jesus announced was simply this. God has invaded our backyard and is making his presence and power available to anybody who wants him. Right here, right now. The time has come, Jesus says. Now God is closer than you think. Sometimes spiritual writers have written about what's called thin places. You know that phrase, thin places? And the idea is that there are times or places or experiences in our lives where it seems like the presence of God is so real. The idea of thin places means where the natural world and the supernatural world seem to come together at their narrowest. It's a thin place between heaven and earth. Like a few weeks ago, we talked about Jacob's dream. In uh, Genesis 28, Jacob's dream of a staircase. Remember, Jacob was, he's a young adult. He, he's in flight. He's fleeing from the wrath of his brother Esau, and his brother has threatened to kill him. So Jacob flees his hometown, and, and he's out in the wilderness. It's a desolate place, and he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, God appears to him in a dream, and in his dream, he sees that staircase, right? Sometimes it's called Jacob's ladder. It's probably more accurately translated a staircase. In his dream, he sees a staircase from earth to heaven, and he sees the, the messengers of God, angels of God, ascending and descending on, on the staircase, and at the top of the staircase, the Lord God himself. <clears throat> and the Lord addresses Jacob, right? He's a young man at the crossroads of his life. He's left all that's familiar. He's headed toward a risky, uncertain future uh, to live among a people that he's never met in a land where he's never been. And uh, God appears to him and says, hey, I'm with you. <laughs> And I'm going to watch over you. In fact, I'm going to bring you back to this place safely. In fact, uh, you don't even know if you're going to survive in the wilderness. You're, you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to have descendants. In fact, the whole world is going to be blessed through your descendants. And one of his descendants would be the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So this is what I, I want us to see is that um, that was a narrow place. That was a thin place. Jacob, he goes to sleep in the wilderness and his whole life is crumbling around him. And he wakes up, I don't know, eight hours later or whatever. He wakes up and he looks at, he's in the same, exact same geographical location. But now he says, this is an awesome place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In fact, he renames that place. He calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, now what's changed? The only thing that's changed is now he recognizes this is a thin place. God is here. God is near. God is speaking to me. God is encountering me. 
You remember the story in uh, Exodus chapter 3, there's a story about another uh, a shepherd named Moses. And Moses is out in the, the Sinai wilderness uh, taking care of the sheep. They're sheep that belong to his father-in-law, Jethro. And one day he sees a, a sight to behold. He sees this bush burning, and although the fire is burning, the bush never gets consumed. It never gets burnt up. And he's drawn to that. You know, it's, maybe it's a little boring out there in the wilderness. I don't know, but he's, this is interesting. So he draws near, and he hears the voice of God address him out, out of the burning bush. You know, Take off your sandals. The place you're standing on is holy ground. And I uh, imagine he couldn't get his sandals off fast enough. It sounds kind of scary. But there in the Sinai Desert, which we might say the middle of nowhere, right? God addresses him, and God calls him. And God says, I've seen the suffering of my people back in Egypt. And they have been, you know, enslaved by their taskmasters. And they're groaning and they're in pain and their life is so difficult. And they've been crying out to me and I've heard their cries. And now I have come down to rescue them. I imagine if I'm Moses, I'm going, yay, God, way to go, God. And then God says, so now you go. You go to Pharaoh. You tell Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, you tell him, let my people go. And if you know this story, it's a great story from Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Uh, Moses has all these reasons, like, who, me? All these reasons why, you're not me, Lord. You know, good idea to go rescue the people, but leave me out of it, right? Uh, and he's got all these reasons why he, he's so inadequate and why God couldn't possibly use him. But God says, you know what? I'm with you, and I'm going to be with you. And he gave him some signs to perform and all that. But uh, this is what I want to see, that Moses found one of those thin places, where, where the, the separation between the natural world and the supernatural world is kind of fading away. It's a narrow place. Uh, a, couple year, a couple weeks ago, um, I think Pastor Abe talked with you about, uh, about Gideon, right? And Gideon, you know, he, he's a coward. He's frightened. He, the the uh, Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites at that point, and, and um, he doesn't have a real significant job, but Gideon is threshing the grain, but he's doing it indoors because he's afraid if he does it outdoors, the Midians are going to come and destroy everything. And so he's basically hiding out, <clears throat> trying to do his job secretly. And the Lord appears to him and says, mighty warrior. And I mentioned Gideon like, who, who, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? You're talking to me, mighty warrior. And the, and, and the Lord basically gave him a whole new identity and a whole new calling and, and raised him as a, up as a big champion of his people uh, to help deliver them from their, their enemies. And uh, it's one of those places. You know, I, I just want us to be thinking about this because we read about this all the time in the Bible. Ordinary people living their ordinary lives in ordinary places, but then they encounter God and things begin to change. Uh, I think it was Pastor Nancy was talking a couple weeks ago, ago about uh, young Samuel. Samuel became one of the great prophets of Israel in the Old Testament. But when he was a young lad, he's being mentored by an old prophet named Eli. And uh, he goes to sleep and he hears a whisper, his name, Samuel. And he goes to Eli and says, did you call me? Eli says, no, go back to sleep, right? And it uh, happens again. Did you call me? No. And, and finally, Eli... He's a prophet, but he's not that sharp. I know. He, he finally realizes uh, what's going on. He, he says to Samuel, you know what? I think that's God talking to you. And if he comes again and, and you know, calls you again, uh, here's what you do. You say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. 
And so young Samuel, Samuel he does that. And uh, God starts to talk to him and address his life and place his calling on Samuel's life and even tell him about the future of his mentor, Eli. And it's not a very bright future uh, for Eli. But uh, this is what we see that it's not just on the mission field. It's not just in the Bible. God can draw near to us. There can be those thin places where we get a glimpse of heaven, where heaven kind of breaks in. Uh, for some of you, maybe it was the birth of, your, of a child. And I don't know about you, it's, it's kind of messy, painful, all that. But it, I don't know, it's kind of a sacred moment too. The miracle of the gift of life. Have you ever seen a new parent with a newborn child? And it's like, they're just going on and on about the miracle of life. And you're thinking, what did you expect? You know, weren't you preparing for this for nine months? And weren't you praying for this long before that? And, you know, children are born every day. Millions of children are born every year. And yet, you know, if you're that parent, especially a first-time parent, it's like you're overwhelmed by the miracle of it. It's like there's something of the sacred. There's something of, wow, God in, in that hospital room. For some people, it's the uh, nearness of God that you experience in nature. You ever heard anybody say, oh, I don't need to go to church because I feel closer to God in nature? You know, and for them, often nature is, you know, a lot of green, grassy area with a little hole in the ground every so often, you know. But um, I, I'm one of these people, now I never skip church because of this, but I'm one of these people, I do feel closer to God sometimes in nature. And, uh, and I love it, you know, for you, maybe it's drinking in the, uh, <clears throat> the sight of the sun rising over a sleeping world, over the rim of a sleeping world. Or, uh, for me, often it's at the ocean or a lake or something and just seeing the beauty. Uh, I can still remember when I was in college, I used to go out to Santa Monica and um, not so much on the beach, but the cliff overlooking the beach. And from there I could see the vastness of the Pacific Ocean and be reminded that the God who made all of that <clears throat> is the God who loves me. And the God who made all of that is actually big enough to handle my problems and my worries. And it, it was awesome. I, I could go out in, into you know, nature like that and, and just feel so close to God. For me, sometimes that's a thin place. Some of you and some of us have been in hospital rooms where uh, someone was dying, a loved one was dying. And that is often a, you know, a moment of anguish and agony and sorrow and loss and pain, and hurt, and sometimes doubt. <clears throat> but I've been there in the room several times when, when people have breathed their last breath. And I've been there with the family who's, who's grieving. But I've also seen this, that that can be a sacred moment. As, as, as loved ones gather around uh, someone that they love, and <clears throat> they've accepted that this person is about to enter into the next world. And, and, and if they're in faith in Jesus, they know this is not the last time we're going to see each other. We will meet again. That's not pie in the sky. That's not wishful thinking. We have the assurance that as Jesus was resurrected from the, <clears throat> from the dead, that we too will have a new life with God and it will be forever. So we will see each other again. But there's this sense of, I've seen it, maybe you've experienced this, the sacredness in that room or, or that hospital room where somebody is making that passageway from this life into the next, from this world into the next. And, and sometimes that is a sacred place. I remember being in, in one situation where the parents were telling their son, it's okay, you can go now. You can be released. You don't have to keep fighting. And uh, you can go to God now, and we're releasing you. And it was a sacred moment. It's a thin place, 
where the intersection between the supernatural and the natural uh, becomes very close. Uh, I had the experience uh, kind of a thin place when I was in China a couple weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a, a man, he's a you know, native national uh, Chinese man. He's 69 years old. And uh, I met him when I was there six months ago in October. Uh, he was uh, one of the people that was at the house church where I was teaching. I didn't really know him. I'd seen him before, but he doesn't speak any English and I don't speak any Chinese, so I, I didn't get to know him at all. But after I taught that night, he told the leader of the house church that he wanted to give his life to Jesus, which was awesome. So the house leader brought him up to me and told me what's going on. And through translation, I was trying to explain the message about Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And we can receive uh, by faith the benefits of his body broken, his blood shed, and we can be forgiven of our sins and receive the Holy Spirit and we can receive eternal life as a free gift of God's grace. And I said, do you understand that? You know, again, getting translated line by line. And he did. And is this what you want to do with your life? And he said, yes. And, and uh, we prayed a prayer that night and he gave his life to Christ. And, and that was in October. So I went back in March a couple of weeks ago, uh, saw him again. It was amazing how much he's changed. He's just alive with with the, you know, the love of God, and you know, he's so joyful now, and, and he wanted me to baptize him, which was cool, you know, but you know, in China, we have to be very discreet about baptizing people, and uh, we had a, a, just a very limited time and place, and so I baptized him in the bathtub of my hotel room that night, and about a half a dozen of his friends were there to witness and to celebrate together, and um, you know, it was awesome. You don't think of the hotel bathtub as being a holy, sacred place. But that night it was. That night we, we all just could really sense the presence of God and, and the celebration of new life and, and just the, the change in, in this man. You know, he shared some of his testimony that night. He said he was a very arrogant man. He, he kind of grew up uh, sort of wealthy from a prominent family. And uh, he said he did really well in school and they had lots of money. And he says... He was arrogant, he was proud, he was stubborn. He said he actually was kind of violent, he had a real temper, anger management issue. And uh, so he shared about that, and then he began to share about how the love of God just kind of melted his heart and began to change him. And it was a glorious moment, you know, hotel, bathroom, okay? But the thin places are where God draws near. Uh, John Ortberg says this in his book, he says, the promise fulfilled in Jesus' coming is the underlying theme of Scripture. Here's what it is. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Right? It was one of the names of Jesus. Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. And we, meaning my Father and I, will come to them and make our home with them. That's the message. Jesus wants to make his home with you. And if you come to Jesus, then he will do that. And so then, in a sense, I guess you could say, you become one of those thin places. You become the presence of God in the world. In fact, the, the church, the community of God's people, the community of faith, in the Bible, one of the things we're called is, is the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Like, Jesus is not here physically, but he's here physically in his body, which is the people of God, the church. So we are, in a sense, to be a thin place for people. Where, where people far from God and people ignorant of God and maybe they've been running from God, maybe they've been fighting God, but uh, they can come and see God's people and 
sense something of the reality of God and the presence of God and hear something of the good news of God. Like you remember, uh, a lot of you know the story about uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria, uh, John chapter 4. And it's an interesting story because she comes to the well at noon. Usually it was women's role in their society that women would have to go and get the water from the well. They'd have to do it every day, sometimes in the morning, sometimes at night, sometimes at both. Right? But women would go in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening because it was hot during the day right? Uh, in Palestine. And, and it was also kind of a social time. The women could get together and catch up with their friends and, you know, hey, you watched the game last night? Yeah, I don't know what they said. But, um, so anyway, uh, they would come and it was a social time and it was also the best time of the day climate-wise. Now, the Bible says in John chapter 4, this woman came at noon. What's she doing out there at noon? Probably what's going on is that she is a kind of a social outcast. If you read the whole story in John 4, you learn that uh, this woman is a, a woman with a lot of brokenness in her past. She's had five marriages. She's had five divorces. The, woman, the man she's living with now is not her husband. Uh, likely what's happening is she's ashamed or the other women gossip about her. So she doesn't want to be at the well when the women's circle is there. She's avoiding them. She's there at noon. And that's when she meets Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, can you give me some water? She's amazed and shocked that he would even talk with her. Because men didn't talk with women in public. You know, women they didn't know. He's a Jew. And Jews hated Samaritans and despised Samaritans. She's a Samaritan. She's saying, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking with me, a Samaritan? How is it you, a man, is talking with me, a woman? And, you know, this woman... It's kind of like she had three strikes against her. From, from the perspective of a Jewish male, she had three strikes against her. One was she was a woman in a very, very patriarchal, male-dominated society. Women were viewed by many men as inferior. Secondly, she was a Samaritan, and Jewish people hated Samaritans and despised them and looked down on them. And the third thing was she was a sinner. I mean, I know we're all sinners, but she was really a sinner. I mean, she was, you know, maybe like viewed as the town slut or something, and People probably gossiped about her and how she couldn't stay in a relationship and how she went through man after man and maybe she felt a lot of rejection. And, and so it's so unlikely that Jesus would be having this kind of very meaningful, deep dialogue with her. But he does. He does. And, and I learned some things from this story. You know, one of them is what people think of you matters far less than what God thinks of you. And Jesus is showing her, you know, you matter. You matter to God. You matter to me. You're worth spending time with. You know, what, what people think of you matters far less than what Jesus thinks of you. Another thing I learned from this story is where you've been, where you've been matters less than where you're going. Her past is kind of sad and uh, difficult and maybe shameful. But where you've been matters less than where you're going. She's actually going to become apparently a disciple of Jesus. Uh, another thing I learned about this is that Jesus offers her something. Remember, Jesus asked her for water, but then they get into this talk about water. You want to talk about water? Jesus says, I can, I can give you living water. And initially she thinks, oh, that just means fresh water, running water. Sometimes they would call running water, living water. She says, sir, give me that water so I never have to come to this well again. And then Jesus begins to go deeper. He begins to say, you know, I'm not just talking about physical water. What he's really talking about, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual life. Water is a symbol of life and 
and uh, vibrancy. And uh, in, in John, uh, Jesus says, this, he says, whoever comes to me from his or her innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And by this, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is basically offering her spiritual life, the Spirit of God to come within you, new life, forgiveness, new start, and all of that. And that's what he's offering to her. And apparently she, she's starting to receive it because she gets so excited, she runs back into town to tell other people. Now, funny story, the, the Bible gives us this little detail. It says, leaving her water jar there, she went back into the town. I'm thinking, wait a minute, hold it, time out. Isn't that why she was there, to get the water? She forgot the water jar? She's pretty excited. Something has happened in her life that's far more compelling than just meeting her you know, physical needs. So she goes into the town. Remember before, she was an outcast and kind of ashamed. She probably shied away from people and avoided them. Now she's running around saying, hey, come see this man. Come see this man who's told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah, God's long-promised anointed one? And I, I want to pick up the story in John chapter 4, uh, verse 39. John chapter 4, verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, this is an amazing thing. Apparently, a whole bunch of people in that town, we would say in our, in our words, they became Christians. They came to faith. Yeah, they were Samaritans. They were supposed to be the wrong kind of people and all that. They came to faith in Jesus, partly because of the woman's testimony. And the woman's testimony got them curious to go out and see Jesus and hear Jesus for themselves. And then when they did that, many more came to faith. And some kind of revival is going on in this town. And you know who God used to spark that revival? Probably the least likely person in town, Right? The broken woman with the shameful past who's rejected by everybody and they look down on her and despise her. So you know what I learned from that? What people think of you matters less than what Jesus thinks. Where you've been matters less than where you're going. And God wants to use regular, ordinary people. God wants to use people like you. In fact, think about this woman. Your plans, whatever they are, pale in comparison to what God wants to do in your life and what God wants to do through your life. Jesus gave a prayer to his disciples. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. But do you remember how the Lord's Prayer begins? Uh, pray then this way. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? May your name be honored. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what that is? That's a prayer about thin places. It's a prayer about saying, uh, no longer this huge separation between heaven and earth. Lord, may heaven come to earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it's already being done in heaven. It's like a prayer that says, bring heaven down here. Make things down here the way they are up there. You know, in heaven, there's no disease. There's no sickness. And there's no child abuse. And there's no spousal abuse. And there's no human trafficking. And there's no poverty. And there's no starvation. 
and there's no civil wars, and there's nobody being forced from their homes by violence, heaven's a good place. And Jesus says, pray that heaven would come to earth, that, that earth would be more like heaven. Pray that God make things down here the way that they are up there. And, and then we're supposed to participate in that prayer, not only say the words, but then we are to be the ones who bring the kingdom, who bear witness to the kingdom. We are to be the conduits of God's presence. You know, that prayer, it's a prayer for radical change, isn't it? It's like saying the, the status quo is, is, is not good. It's not enough. It's not okay. Uh, that there's all kinds of things in terms of violence and brokenness and disease and man's inhumanity to man in this world, and it's not okay. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And God wants to use his people to be the, the thin places where, where the divine can affect the ordinary. You know what that means? One of the thoughts I had about this is, you know what that means? That really means that, that if you're a Christian, you are one of the people of the future. right? Because the kingdom is going to come in all its fullness and glory and power. And there is going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, whether willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at the end, Jesus is going to win and he's going to be established and visible and manifest as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's going to be so undeniable. But that day is not this day. But we are those who embrace that day, that reality which is coming, and live today in light of it. So we are the bringers of the kingdom. Right? We are the conduits of the presence of God. And that's how we live. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, it says, uh, Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went through the towns and the villages. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and sickness, right? He's coming as the representative of the kingdom, the bearer of the kingdom, and he's, he's teaching the scriptures and he's proclaiming the gospel and he's uh, helping the hurting. And, and then it says this, uh, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Big need, right? Sheep without a shepherd are lost and endangered. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You know what Jesus is doing? He is creating a sense of urgency. He's saying there's a problem with this world. He says, a lot of needs, a lot of opportunities, too few people responding to the call. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers. And then in the next verse, we, we don't catch this because it's a different chapter. At the end of chapter 9, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest field. The first verse in chapter 10, you know, our chapter divisions are artificial. It's not in the original Bible. It was added by translators. The very next verse, verse chapter, what we call chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And he's going to commission them now to go out on mission, right? So I want you to think about this. First, Jesus says, great needs, great opportunities, but too few people stepping up. And then he says, pray that the Lord of Harvest will get more people to step up. So they pray a little while, I don't know how long. And then Jesus says, okay. It's you. You're the one that's supposed to step up. You're the one that's the missionary. I'm going to send you. 
I want you now to, to teach God's truth. And I want you now to share the good news. And I want you to help the hurting. It's you. You know what he's doing? I think this is what he's doing. He's saying, you are a missionary. You're not one of the missionaries, perhaps, that's being sent to a different culture in a different country where they speak a different language. If God's calling you, you better go. <laughs> but for most of us, maybe he's not calling us to that, but he is saying, I want to send you. Are you available? Would you do what a missionary is supposed to do? And that's, you wake up in the morning and you say, God, here am I. My life is for you. My life is available to you. What do you have for me this day? I anticipate you. Help me to see what you're doing. Help me to join you in what you're doing. Uh, help me to, to, to be used by you as an instrument of your grace and, and a vessel that can share your grace and truth. In that sense, I think every one of us is called to be a missionary. And for some of you, maybe it's by helping with the Math Olympiad and some of you, it's working with the play group and making connections with some of our unchurched neighbors in that way. And for some of you, maybe it's helping with this new reading group that just started and uh, helping preschool kids and, and their parents who, for the most part, are immigrants. And uh, for some of you, maybe it's teaching English language and maybe partnering with Jubilee Reach or, or something like that. Uh, uh, some, of, some of you, it's, it's going to Panera Bread on Sunday night when it closes and picking up the leftover bread and packaging it so that it can be picked up the next day by the Renewal Food Bank and be used to feed hungry people uh, that week. Uh, for some of you, it's ministries within our church that are going to help us present a warm and welcoming presence, especially in the next couple weeks as we approach Easter. Um, this is what I want us to realize is that you are a missionary. You're sent by God, and you're to be that conduit of heaven, and you're to be his representative. You know, Jesus says, you know, let the world, let people see your good works so that they will give glory to your Father in heaven. And I want to think, we've got to stop idealizing missionaries. We've got to stop thinking, oh, that that's where the action is. That's where God really shows up. That's where, you know, on the mission field, God works, but he doesn't work here. I think we've got to get over that because if we don't, you know what's going to happen? The missionaries will be out there and the pastors or whoever uh, being really active in the work of the kingdom and then everybody else is like in the stands applauding them. Yay, way to go. Keep on, fight on, hang in there, right? And you know what? You're going to miss what God wants for you. Jesus says, you know, tremendous opportunity. Not enough people stepping up. Not enough people stepping to the plate. Not enough people willing to take a risk of faith. But you know, when you do, that's when things really become alive. I was talking with somebody after first service this morning. She said, you know, my ministry right now, at least one of my ministries right now, is I'm, I'm, I'm a volunteer with Make-A-Wish Foundation. You know, what they do, they take, you know, they help children who are, who are very seriously ill and, and we just kind of grant their wishes and, and help them, you know, uh, live well for whatever time they have left on this earth and, and just love on them and love on their family. I thought, That's awesome. You're a missionary, you know? And, and so this is what we got to do. We got to say, you know, I may not be called to be in a foreign field, but I am a missionary. And this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to offer up myself and whatever gifts and resources and expertise and, and knowledge that he's given me or contacts and influence. And I, it's, Lord, I belong to you, so everything I have belongs to you. Here am I. Use me. Send me. And when you do that, you know what's going to happen? Heaven. Heaven's going to be breaking in in this world all over the place for the glory of God. All right?
Okay, normally I would say, well, let's just close in prayer. But you know what I want to do instead? I want to lead us into time for communion. And, you know, when Jesus gave us communion, that was supposed to be one of those, you know, those thin places, right? Where, where he says, you know, I'm among you. When two or three gather in my name, I'm among you. And uh, that night, the Last Supper, he, he took the bread and he had his disciples around him, the, his followers, just like we have this morning. And he took the bread and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. You take, you eat, right? Uh, do this in remembrance of me. And then he, he took the cup, he says, uh, think of it this way, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, and it's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so you partake, because he didn't say this, but I think the implication is you got some sins that need forgiven. <laughs> you need some cleansing. So you partake, you partake. So we're going to invite you to come today, and you can take the piece of the cracker. They're all gluten-free, incidentally. And, uh, and you can dip it in the juice. And, and let this be your time of communion, of fellowship, uh, of knowing that the, the Lord is setting a warm and welcoming place for you. And some of us, we think, oh, but God, you don't know what I did this week. And then God says, you know what? I do know what you did. <laughs> and I forgive you. <laughs> and you come. You're welcome. You come as you are. You offer up yourself. You receive this meal that the Lord wants to give you. And the meal is himself. His sacrifice for you. So that you now can present yourself and rise from that table forgiven, cleansed, made new. And then say, Lord, here am I. I want you to use me. Okay, let's pray, prepare our hearts. Lord, thank you so much that you have given your all for us. You have done everything necessary so that by grace, through faith, we can receive salvation, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of our sins, and we can embark on this adventure that you have for all of your children. So Lord, prepare us, forgive us our sins, Give us that fresh start with you today, Lord. Bless us as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here, just a bit of instruction. Uh, come up either of these two side inner aisles, and uh, we'll have an usher at the front that can direct you, and you can partake at, this, at the standing tables or the kneeling tables. Uh, but let's do this with joy. It's like Jesus is saying, I want you. I want you at my table, and let's have this fellowship together. Uh, when you return to your seat, you can go down the middle aisle or the two uh, outside aisles. And also on those outside aisles along the wall, we're going to have some people up uh, just available to pray for you. So if you'd like to stop by for a, a minute and, and receive prayer, that would be a, a blessing too. Okay? So come as you're ready and let's enjoy this time with the Lord.